your row. You got your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you're turning there, um, I'll tell you a little story. One summer when I was in high school, I think I was about 17 years old, um, my, my family took a road trip. Now, when my family took road trips, uh, for, for you guys, probably a road trip for you was driving from Memphis or, or South Haven or Olive Branch, where you might be from, like to the beach, right? Like six hours, eight hours, maybe to Disney World, like 13, 14 hours. My family didn't do road trips like that. When my family did a road trip, at least by this point in our life, we drove from North Carolina, where we lived, to Seattle, Washington, and back. We put 8,000 miles on the vehicle. We took the whole month of June for a road trip. That's a crazy road trip. Uh, and so this was the, the first road trip that we took after I had my driver's license. And so I got a chance to drive part of the, the, the trip, which was very exciting. But I got a chance to do something else on this trip I'd never done before. Uh, my dad told me, you know, kind of here's where we're going to go. Here's the destinations we're going to hit. We're going to see our uncle here and our cousins here and we'll go see this site here. But then he told me I got to navigate. Handed me the Ram McNally Road Atlas, and I was the one who was going to find the shortest distance from point A to point B. Now, let me step back, because some of you, I lost you when I said Road Atlas. Um, you see, you see they, they, we didn't always have these things called smartphones, and they didn't always have GPS. And if you even go back, if some of you might remember before that, you're like, oh, yeah, you had MapQuest. This is before MapQuest. This is before Google Maps, right? This is this before before. You actually had to have a map and open it up and figure out where you wanted to go and figure out where you were, first of all, in order to figure out where you wanted to go. So I was so excited. I spent, like, weeks ahead of time, like, looking through different charts and maps and figuring out here's the different things we're going to hit. So, so our first destination was Bowling Green, Kentucky, which has the National Corvette Museum. So, so my dad and I, we wanted to go see the National Corvette Museum. We'd never been to Kentucky, so we can check a, a state off the list. So we went to Bowling Green, Kentucky, went and saw the National Corvette Museum. This is day two. Day one went great, mapped it out fine. Day two went good, started out, and then we got to the Corvette Museum. So then my job was just to get us across western Kentucky into Missouri. And we were going to spend the night somewhere in eastern Missouri and move on to day three. So everything's going good. We're excited. We're feeling good. The family's even getting along on a road trip. In Jesus' name, it's a miracle. And we start to take the descent down to the Mississippi River. And we were very excited for this. Most of us, three of us out of the four of us, had only seen the Mississippi River once. When we had moved from North Carolina to Seattle, we had crossed over it in Memphis, right next to the Pyramid, when it was still a basketball place before it became Bass Pro. Uh, so, so this was our second time to see the Mississippi River, so we were excited. So we're going down the hill, getting close, and then we saw a weird sign. And the sign said, Ferry Closed. Huh. That's weird. So we kept on driving the extra mile, and we get down to the Mississippi River, and what do we find? We sign a boat dock, but no bridge. And you look across the river, there's another boat dock and a road that goes from there. You see, I had picked a route across western Kentucky that did not have a bridge across the Mississippi River. See, I knew where I wanted to go. I just didn't know the way. And so we had to backtrack, and we lost a few hours, and all that family synergy went right out the window, and I had failed my first big test as a navigator. But how many people do the same thing in life? We know where we want to go, but we don't really know the way. We might know the general direction. We might know the general idea. Well, if I move over here, it's going to move me closer to where I want to be, but we don't have a bridge to get us from where we are to where we want to be. 
Jesus in John chapter 14 is having a great conversation. In fact, we talked a little bit about this conversation last week. He's, he's at the Last Supper, right? He's sitting down with his disciples. And, and John chapter 13, this conversation begins at this Last Supper. And Jesus goes and he does something crazy. He, he, he starts washing their feet. And so John 13 starts out really strong. He's teaching them about service. But then John 13 takes a, a scary turn. Because if you read through John 13, there's two more parts to it. The first part is Jesus predicts, one of you guys is going to betray me. Just imagine that the air gets sucked out of the room. Who is it? I wouldn't betray you, Lord. It wouldn't be me. They start looking around, and then ultimately Judas is identified as the betrayer, and, and Judas leaves, and now it's like, man, these 12 brothers who spent life together for the last three years, and now they feel like, man, he's, he's not betraying Jesus. He's betraying us. Things have gotten pretty discouraging. Then it gets even worse because Peter steps up and he's like, I'll never betray you, Lord. Oops. Famous last words, right? I'll ne- man, I'm going to read my Bible every day, Jesus. I'm never missing church again, right? Like we put that thing out there and it's like, how long does it take before we, we fall back on that? Well, it didn't take Peter very long. Jesus says, no, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times tonight. Not some point, 40 years down the road, you can't keep this up the rest of your life. You can't make it 12 hours, Pete. Like, you don't have the ability in you. You're going to deny me three times tonight. So this is the context that we come into John chapter 14. This, this dinner that has started so great, a bunch of friends getting together and celebrating, all of a sudden has become pretty discouraging. Judas is a betrayer. And even Peter, the most loyal, the most out front, the most outspoken one of us, even he can't stand with Jesus. What's going to happen to me? And we get into John 14, and Jesus recognizes the temperature of the room. You know Jesus always recognizes the temperature of the room. Jesus always knows what we need to hear. And so Jesus goes in a, in a different direction. He decides, you know what, it's time to bring some encouragement. And so he brings some encouragement. In John chapter 14, verse 1, he starts out, he says, do not. Let your hearts be troubled. I know everything sounds bad right now. I know that that the next few days may not go the way that you want them to. I know some things are going to be uncomfortable. But there's something greater in store for you. The end of the story is great. Do not get upset. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, you believe in God, referring to his father. He says, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? In other words, he's saying, I got a spot for you. I haven't forgotten about you, James. You're gonna have, you, you might have your head cut off for my glory. You might be the first one of the disciples to go, but I ain't forgotten about you. I got a spot reserved for you. I got a room for you, James. There's something wonderful on the other side at my father's house. And Thomas, I know that you're the most doubting one in here. I know that you got the most questions, but I haven't forgotten about you either. I got a room with your name on it. And, and, and Nathaniel, nobody even remembers you, but I didn't forget you. I got a spot for you. I got a room for you. And he goes, he's telling them, don't worry. You might not see me for a while. I might disappear. You may not really be sure what's going on with me, but at the end, I've got a spot for you, and it's my father's house, and you're going to come where I am. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And then verse 4, he makes this really confusing statement to the disciples. He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Now, that sounds like it should be a really encouraging statement, right? You know the way to the place I'm going. Well, but here's the problem with verse 4. 
Jesus was speaking on a different level than the disciples were hearing. How often does this happen in our lives? Jesus was communicating on a spiritual plane, and the disciples are hearing him on a physical plane. So he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going, and they start thinking through, well, where, where are you going? Maybe, maybe you're going back to Bethany. Maybe you're going back to see Mary and Martha and, and hang out with Lazarus, who you raised from the dead just, just a little while ago. Man, we know how to get there. Maybe, maybe you're going to Capernaum. You're going back to Galilee. And you're going to go back out to, to, to the area where you grew up. Or maybe maybe you're even leaving Israel altogether. And you're going to Egypt where you spent a couple years as a kid. Where are you going? As soon as we know where you're going, then we can know the way, right? Because that's kind of the way it works. You can't figure out the way that you're going on vacation on your road trip until you know the destination, right? Like you, that, that's, that's a better way to do it. You want to know where you're headed first, and then you plot the path. You see, first thing I want you to write down today is before you pick a way, you must first pick a place before you pick a way you must first pick a place and so the disciples are confused because they don't know the place now they shouldn't have been confused because Jesus had already forced out of this in fact he had just finished telling them my father's house they should have been able to put together where are you going where are you going to daddy's house he was talking about that but but that's not with their thinking so finally one of them speaks up and of course it's Thomas because anytime Thomas speaks he says something dumb verse 5 says Thomas said to him Lord we don't know where you're going so how can we know the way? So, so this is a semi-legitimate question, right? He's right. You, if you don't know where you're going, how can I know the way there? He's right about that. The reason why it's not so legitimate is because he should have known where Jesus was going. So, so Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, how can we even know? Because we don't know where you're headed. So, so Jesus then in verse 6 is going to make our, our fifth I am statement in this series. In fact, if you go through the book of John, it's the sixth one because we're going to go back and, and pick some up. We're doing it outside of chronology so we can finish on Easter with I am the resurrection and the life. But, but he makes this declaration of his goodness followed by a picture of how he operates in our lives. And man, it's a good one. Verse six, you already heard it once. We'll put it on the screen for you so you can see it. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice that Jesus answers Thomas's specific question rather than trying to answer the implied question. What Thomas is really asking is, where are you going, Jesus? Right? He, he, he says, how can we know where you're going if we don't know, or how can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? But what he's really saying is, Jesus, just tell us. Just put a name on it. I can, fi- I can get a map. We can figure our way out. Just say where you're going, and we'll meet you there, Lord. That's what he's really suggesting. But, but his literal words are the ones that Jesus actually addresses. He says, how can I know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. In other words, Jesus does not give them directions to heaven. Jesus does not walk them out on a, on a five-step path. Here's the five pillars. Here's the seven things you need to know. Here's the 14 things in order to be a follower of Jesus. He doesn't go through any kind of list or any kind of works. Man, if you do this, this, and this, if you check off these seven sacraments, if you get baptized, if you join a church, if you tithe, if you get involved, if you do these things, you'll get to come where I am. He doesn't go through any of that. What does he do? He says, I am the way. You already know the way because you don't even have to know where you're going because you know me. All you got to know is me. If you know me, you'll get where you want to go. He declares, I am the way. In the process, he, he essentially makes three separate 
but connected declarations. He says, I am the way to the Father. I am the truth of the Father. And I am the life of the Father. You see, because at the end of it, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So when he's saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, he's saying, in order to get from where you are to where God is, I'm the way you get there. In order to get God's truth in your life, the Father's truth in your life, you come through me. In order to get his life flowing through you, you come through me. In order to get to him, you come through me. So so I want to look at each of these three statements individually. I wish I had more time to unpack these because each of them are so good, but but we're going to spend five minutes or so on each of them. The first thing Jesus says is, I am the way to the Father. In Isaiah chapter 35, God speaks through through the prophet of a joyful time that is to come for those who are redeemed. And and we don't have time to read the whole chapter. It's really good. It's only about 12 verses. Uh, But I want to show you three verses just to give you an idea of the picture Isaiah presents. Isaiah 35, he says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, speaking of this time that is to come, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Basically what Isaiah is saying is, Everything that once was awful will one day be awesome. Everything that used to be messed up, every, every issue there used to be is going to be resolved. And then in verse 8, he tells us how and why. He says, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. John 14, Jesus shows up and he says, I am that highway. I'm the way of holiness. I'm the way that you will walk on. How do you get to the place where the blind eyes are opened? You come through me. How do you get to the place where the deaf ears can hear? You come through me. How do you get to the place where the mute tongue can shout for joy? You come from me. How do you get to the place where streams show up in the desert? You come through me. How do you come to the place where all that awful stuff becomes all the awesome stuff? You come through me. I'm the highway. I'm the pathway. I'm the way of holiness. I'm the way. You see, Isaiah was foreshadowing Jesus, that a highway will come. I love this idea of Jesus as a highway because I'm a road trip guy. I didn't have my first flight until I was 20 years old. My, my mom doesn't like to fly. So if we went somewhere, we did it on the road. So I grew up on the road, and I, and I love road trips. I love the highways. I love seeing our country and, and open spaces. And I think it's a beautiful picture of Jesus. I'm the way. You travel along me, you're going to get where you want to go. This declaration of Jesus was so powerful that it actually gave us the first name that Jesus' followers were known by. It wasn't until Acts chapter 11 where they're first called Christians at Antioch, which means little Christ or, or literally little anointed ones. And it was a derogatory term. It was a sarcastic term. Look at all these people trying to be like Jesus. They were mocking them, but they said, they said you know what? I like that. You can mock me and say I'm trying to be like Jesus. But, but before that, and, and actually five times in the book of Acts, whereas we only see them referred to as Christians twice, but five times in the book of Acts they're referred to as followers of the way. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go around and change your Facebook profile from I'm a Christian to I follow the way. Like, I don't think the terminology is, is that important, but I want you to see how important this statement was to his disciples. Jesus said, I am the way. And after Jesus died and rose again and went back to heaven and, and people said, who are you? We're just people that follow the way. It's 
stuck with them. It was so profound to them. It was the term they chose for themselves. We are part of the way. We are followers of the way. This is so significant because in every culture and every belief system in the world, they have a way. They have a way that they teach. This is how you get to eternity. This is how you get to heaven. This is how you get to God. This is how you get to nirvana. This is how you get to to the highest place. Every culture globally has an idea of how you do it, and they have pillars, and they have statements, and they have these steps that you have to take. That And ultimately, if you talk to the practitioners of any of those faiths, they're going to say, I hope I've done enough. Because ultimately, it's all based on works. It's all based on you being good enough. Talk to somebody who follows Islam. They're going to say, I hope I've done enough for Allah to accept me. If you talk to somebody uh, who, who's in Buddhism, and I, I hope I've done enough that I can reach nirvana. If you talk to somebody in any of those faiths, they, they just hope that somehow, some way, their good is going to outweigh their bad. And that whenever, whoever that deity is or however multiple deities they worship, that they're going to look down and say, okay, you can come with us. If you talk to a Mormon, they're going to hope that they've done enough to make it to the celestial kingdom and actually the highest level of the celestial kingdom. If you talk to anybody that doesn't know Jesus, they're just going to say, I hope I've done enough because they have an idea of a way, but the way is unclear and it's vague. And it's, man, I hope I can get there. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm not going to give you 17 steps. I'm not even going to give you 10 commandments. I'm not going to give you do's and don'ts. I'm just going to tell you that I'm the way. All you got to do to get to the Father is know me. All you got to do to get to the Father is is let me be Lord of your life. Let me in when I knock on the door of your heart. All you got to do is know me and you'll get there. I am the way to the Father. You want to experience eternity in heaven in the presence of God, you just have to know Jesus. You just have to know the way. Now, if you're a Christian, you already know this, right? Like, we're, we're familiar with this. We understand this. That's why I said what I did at the end of worship, because it's an, I, I think there's implications here beyond simply salvation and eternity. I think Jesus is saying, I'm the way to whatever it is you need from the Father. Because he goes on to say, if, if you ask him, whatever you ask him in my name, it shall be done for you. It shall be given to you. I am the way. Just say, say Jesus is the way. He's the way. So then he goes on, he says, not only am I the way, but I'm the truth of the Father. Now, now, again, we're adding of the Father because he says at the end of it, no one comes to the Father except through me. So the context, the implication is all of these things connect us from where we are to where the Father is. So I'm the truth of the Father. The, the book of John famously opens in John 1, 1 by saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It introduces this idea of Jesus as the Word, or if you go to the original Greek, Logos. Jesus is Logos. He, he's the Word. And, and again and again in John chapter 1, he refers to Jesus as the Word. I, I heard a story one time that a, a girl was in Sunday school, this little girl, seven, eight years old, and the Sunday school teacher is reading through John and goes through John 1, 1 and say, asks the girl, okay, why, why is Jesus the Word? And the little girl looks up and she says, he's the Word because he's everything God wanted to say to us. Wow. The brilliance, the depth. How awesome is that? Jesus is the Word. He's the truth because he's everything God wanted us to know. You see, Jesus isn't just true 
In, in, in other words, something that is true is something that lines up with the facts, right? It is true that I was born in Seattle, Washington, right? You, you could put a name on a, in a place probably on where you were born. You could put a, a title on your parents, right? And those are true statements. Jesus isn't just true. He actually is truth. In other words, truth is anything that lines up with Jesus, and anything that doesn't line up with Jesus is false. It's a lie. That's why Jesus says his adversary, his opponent, his rival, your enemy, the, the, the devil, actually speaks his native language as lies. So Jesus is truth. Satan is lies. They're, they're, they're contrary to one another. Jesus says, I am the truth of the Father. He's everything the Father wanted to say to us. John 1.14 even says this about him. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came from God, full of grace. Praise God that he's full of grace and full of truth. Now, here's what we do, and, and this is not really connected to this message, but I think it's important to say. As Christians so often, as churches so often, we choose one or the other. We're going to be a grace church, and we're going to encourage people, and we're going to make people feel good, and we're going to love people, or we're going to be a truth church, and we're going to stand on truth no matter how controversial it is and no matter how offensive it is. We're going to believe for truth. But the thing is, you don't choose between grace and truth. You choose Jesus, and you choose both. See, there is no truth without grace, and there is no grace without truth. They are not opposed to each other. They're two sides of the same coin, and we have to always present both. We can't just present grace and water things down because there is truth, but we can't just present truth and water things down because there is grace. We have to present both because Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. He is the, fo- the truth of the Father. Now, and he goes on to say, I am the life. I am the life of the Father, point three. This is the second I am statement of Jesus chronologically where he says something and then says, and the life. The the first one is what we'll get to in two weeks. A few chapters before in John chapter 11 is he's talking to Martha about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Here he is. Again, saying it in John 14, in case you missed it when I was talking to Martha, in case you weren't paying attention when I brought Lazarus out out of the grave, I want to remind you one more time, I am life itself. I am the life. The only I am statement that is repeated in the book of John, the only one that that, that he said, you know what, I got to point this out one more time just to make sure you catch it. He says, I am the life. Not just any life, but the life of the Father. In other words, as we've already hinted at, Jesus is the conduit to the Father's life. What does the Father have that you need? He's got freedom. He's got joy. He's got peace. He's got provision. Whatever it is in the Father's life, Jesus says, I'm the connection for you to get it. I'm the ability for you to walk in that life. That's why he goes on to say in the very next verse, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the picture of the Father. They're in perfect unity. And so if you know Jesus, you know God the Father because Jesus is the way. He's the truth, and he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Look with me one more time at John 14, 6. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those nine words in John 14, 6, at the end of the verse, 
are perhaps the most controversial declaration in all of scripture. Almost any belief system will embrace Jesus as a good teacher. Almost any belief system will, will embrace Jesus as a good example who taught some moral truths. Many belief systems, in fact, will even embrace Jesus as a prophet. You know, Islam believes that Jesus was a prophet. He was a representative of God. He was one who spoke God's word. What sets Christianity apart and what is so offensive to the world is Jesus doesn't just say, I am a way and a truth and a life. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one, nobody, no man, no woman, no white person, no African American, no Hispanic, no one young, no one old, no one good, no one bad. It don't matter who you are. It don't matter what you've done. You ain't getting to the Father except through me. Now you preach that in a Christian church and people get fired up. You teach that somewhere else and people get firing at you. It's offensive. But here's the thing that you have to understand. People hate Christianity unlike any other religion in the world because Christianity is exclusive. Christianity dares to say Jesus is the only way. But you also have to understand this. Christianity is not just narrow and exclusive. Christianity is also wide and inclusive. You see, many other faiths, you have to be of a particular race or a particular ethnicity. You have to be in, in Hinduism. You better hope that you're part of the upper caste. Because if you're part of the lower caste, if you're lower class, you're looked down upon. You're spit upon. In, in Mormonism, my dad grew up Mormon. In Mormonism, they believe if you're a woman, the only way you make it to the celestial kingdom, which is their version of heaven, is if you're married to a man who's going to the celestial kingdom. That's why they do polygamy. That's why they have plural marriage, because, man, I want to get a man who's going to Celestial Kingdom. And there's a few men, so that all these women flock to them. You see, all these other faiths and all these other ways exclude. They may say there's many ways. They may say you can have your way, I'm going to have my way. But, but there's exclusion in their way. Jesus is the only one who said, I am exclusive, but I am absolutely inclusive. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if, if you've never messed up and you think you've lived a perfect life or you've blown it every two seconds. I don't care what your works are. I don't care how good you think you are your righteousness is the filthy rags but I'm gonna give you mine you can have it I welcome you into my kingdom John 14 6 exclusive terrifying offensive controversial life-giving and true Jesus is the way and he's the truth and he is the life and we can't apologize for that. We can't water that down. We can't pretend that it's not there. You see, Jesus cannot be a good teacher and not God. He doesn't give us that opportunity. He's either a liar and an evil person, or he's the son of God who came to die for my sins and for yours. And we all have to make that decision for ourselves. I know which side I'm on. I know what decision I've made. For me, Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. He's the only way to get from where I am in my sin and my junk and my fallen state to where he is, to where the Father is in his perfection. He offers us that opportunity. You see, many of us, many people on this planet are, are just like my family, driving foolishly to the Mississippi River with no bridge. We know where we're going to go, but we just don't know how to get there. Well, there's an answer. Jesus stepped up in John 14, 6, and he said, I know where you want to go, and I know how you can get there.
and it's through me. Would you pray with me this morning?